BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I'm sure that some of you may have heard about a letter that the FBI director uh, sent out yesterday. Well, if you're like me, you probably have a few questions about it. Stay on point, Donald, stay on point. No sidetracks, Donald, nice and easy, nice. I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. I want to be the president for everybody. Everybody who agrees with me, people who don't agree with me, people who vote for me, people who don't From the New York Times, this is a special Election Day episode of The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. And now, we wait. After 18 months of the most unusual, intense, divisive, angry, surprising, psychologically exhausting presidential campaign that any of us can remember, today we just kind of wait to find out what the next four years will hold. And so today on the show, we're going to pass the time by tackling the big remaining questions from you, our listeners— about what just happened, about how we covered it here at The Times, about what happens today, Election Day, and about what might lie ahead after an election like this one. For answers, we'll draw on many of my colleagues from the politics team, starting with Ashley Parker. We got a ton of questions specifically about what it was like to report on this campaign, and Ashley's been on the trail with Donald Trump for over a year, so she's perfect to answer this first question. Hello, my name is Allison Seidrick. I'm a senior at Hanford High School in Richmond, Washington, and I was wondering, were there any instances where Trump said something to you that made you afraid to continue reporting or particularly fearful of a possible Trump presidency? Sort of existentially, there's things Trump has said about freedom of the press or the lack thereof or suing reporters for libel or slander that I sort of find troubling on the macro level. Um, But in terms of feeling fearful in the moment. There hasn't been a particular thing or phrase he said, but I can tell you about the first time I felt unsafe at a Trump rally. And that was, I had just started covering him. I'd come over from sort of like earnest, humble, low energy Jeb Bush. And (laughs) (laughs) I'm at this Trump rally and it was just uh, the, everything he was saying was just firing up the crowd. Uh, It was nighttime in New Orleans. It was sort of twilight that had turned to black. We were outdoors. It was hot and muggy. We were in an airport hangar and there were a lot of protesters too. Mm. And I was standing on the riser with my laptop so I could have a better view of what was going on, but also take notes. And at a certain point, I just kind of in my head realized that if someone gets pushed the wrong way or someone calls the wrong person a name, this entire place is going to erupt in a mosh pit. And it's sort of embarrassing to say this now, but the only thing I could think of to do was I went back and I put my laptop down because I thought I would sort of be more nimble and able to run and either cover the scene or save myself if I was unencumbered by my MacBook Air. (laughs) 
But that was the first time I sort of felt like, okay, I need to be in position to sort of assess this situation if it gets out of control. There have been moments where Trump has tried to turn a crowd against the media. And I wonder what it's like when he does that and you're among the reporters who literally thousands of people suddenly cock their heads and turn towards and start chanting at. Yeah, this this he does this more. Um, he does this generally. Sometimes he will often single out TV reporters by name because um, he he recognizes them and the crowd recognizes them too. So it's a much more sort of visceral reaction. But I can remember one time I was in a rally in San Diego with probably over ten thousand people, a packed arena. And Trump always has the press in a metal cage in the middle of the crowd. So you're literally surrounded by a sea of people. And Maggie Haberman and myself had just written an article that had just posted online that he really did not like. And he called us both out by name. Mm. And she wasn't there. I was there. And he sort of mentions these two women at the New York Times, you know, a woman called Parker and a woman called Haberman. And then he says, who? No first names. No first names. No first names. And then he says to the crowd, you know, he says, I hope they're not here now. I wonder if they're here now. Is she here now? And of course I am. I'm literally sitting in the front row of this rally and the entire crowd turns around and starts booing and hissing. But what's funny is since I'm a print reporter, no one knows who I am. And Except so, for the beet red face you were probably wearing. So I did a better job than you would expect of <laughs> me. What immediately happens, of course, is all of the other reporters who know me, they all laser like turn turns me. But I just sort of kept on typing as if I, too, didn't know who this horrible <laughs> woman was. And the crowd then, you know, quickly turned back to the next person in his speech who was attacking, who that day was actually Judge Curiel. I have to think that's pretty traumatic, whether you feel it right away or you feel it like two days later or two weeks later. But how do you cope with that? There have been moments where I've stepped back and realized there's probably a bit of an emotional toll dealing with this day in and day out. But sometimes this almost feels cosmically more fatiguing. And I think, forget about what they say about the press, But sometimes at these rallies, you go in and you see these shirts that, you know, call Hillary Clinton the C-word or you hear, you know, Trump supporters using racial slurs or saying nasty things about Hispanics or or women. And you sort of don't realize first how immune you become to this. Right. At a certain point, if I'm at a Trump rally and someone says, hang the bitch. Like, I just sort of think like, oh, he's angry with Hillary Clinton. And that's sort of not a normal way to behave and not normal things to hear. And I think when you have these moments where you step back, you realize what an emotional toll it takes to hear women call those things day after day, to call Hispanics those things day after day, to hear black people call those things. What do you actually do when you, at the end of a long day, after the rally, get back to your room? What's the decompression system? So I would like to say I do something healthy, like going for a run. But I've actually found that at the end of these days, oftentimes I don't even have the energy to go to the hotel bar for a drink, but I sort of will just like get in bed and kind of lie there prone. And what's funny is I was talking to another reporter um, at the Washington Post and I found out he was doing the exact same thing. So it may be that the only appropriate response after a rally is lying spread eagle on your bed. (laughs) (laughs) All right. One more question for you about Trump's use of music. Hi, my name is Derek Wong. I'm calling from Seattle. 
And my question has to do with Donald Trump, and unfortunately it's not really a policy question, but I have noticed that he repeatedly uses the Rolling Stones song, You Can't Always Get What You Want. You can't always get what you want. So I was just curious, what's up with his usage of that song? It, it's not exactly uh, as forceful as some other campaign anthems. Okay, that's my question. Bye. You know what? I would love to know the answer to that question, too. <laughs> but what I can tell you is that Donald Trump's campaign playlist is literally all handpicked by Mr. Trump himself. So it's very heavy on the 80s. It's a lot of Rolling Stone. There used to be Billy Joel. Um, that also sort of makes his new edition of the Backstreet Boys, I Want It That Way, all the more curious. Yeah. When did that make its debut? About a, a week or two ago. Um, and, and we were delighted, uh, but it was just a sort of unexpected addition. But I will say that particular Rolling Stones song, You Can't Always Get What You Want, has had some unintended consequences. Such as? Well, the first is that there is an entire group of political reporters <laughs> who now loathe the Rolling Stones <laughs> just because we hear it played so often at such high decibels. But the second thing is that was the song that they played when Donald Trump announced Mike Pence as his running mate. Right. And it sort of acted as, you know, this unintended, grimly dark metaphor for Mr. Trump kind of feeling forced into choosing Mike Pence when there were all these rumors <laughs> that he had wanted, you know, Chris Christie or John Kasich or just about anyone else. And then right. poor Mike Pence has to take the stage to you can't always get what you want. This is a good opportunity to ask you, and I should say that you and I have covered a presidential campaign before, which was Mitt Romney in 2012. Like, what is the role of the presidential playlist? Like, who is it supposed to be communicating to and what is it supposed to be conveying? Typically, when you cover Republicans, and Donald Trump is the exception, it's just a ton of country music. Um, and Americana. Yes, country music and Americana. Oh, wait, there's actually a particular song that did that from yeah. the Romney campaign. What the heck was it called? Um, so the, the song that he played at the end of his rally. So it was if called? I, it's called It's America by Rodney Atkins. It goes, It's a high school prom. It's a Springsteen song. It's a ride in a Chevrolet. It's a man on the moon. No, you're doing it wrong. Oh, I'm getting it wrong. No, it's like, it's a man on the moon and fireflies in June and kids selling lemonade. <laughs> it's really, it's really, it's really Singing Mitt Romney. Singing is an anti-talent of really, mine. It's really Mitt Romney because it is, it's pure, it's nostalgic, it's respectful, it's yeah. patriotic. Yeah, it is quintessentially patriotic. And it's the backdrop you want at these campaign events. You're going into small towns. You want people coming off of their porches and, and coming out to and hear you. And it feels you. good. And the other thing I should mention that happens every campaign cycle, we always see is a candidate chooses a song and then the band or the artist behind the song comes out and says, I don't want that candidate using my music. You know, I'm going to send them a cease and desist letter or I'm going to sue them. And this is actually much more of a challenge for Republicans because so much of sort of the artistic community is Democratic. Right. And that, my suspicion, frankly, is that's another reason why Republicans typically play so much country music because country stars are the ones who are not going to sue them. But when you look at sort of like pop and hip hop and just kind of popular tunes, most of those people do not want their name associated with a Republican candidate. Yes, and the best example of this is Chris Christie and Bruce Springsteen. Chris Christie is such a Springsteen 
fan. He goes to every single concert. He like sings and sways with <laughs> such abandon at these concerts. And Bruce just like will not give him time of day. That one actually makes me sad. <laughs> it is. It's kind of poignant, actually. I mean, he he loves Bruce. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you. We have more questions about what it's like to cover this campaign. And for the next batch, I wanted to bring in Maggie Haberman because, Maggie, you are the scoop artist-in-chief on our campaign team. And we have a set of questions about how we break news in this campaign. Hey, Maggie. Hi, Michael. The first question is really about the stories that nobody breaks. Hi, uh, Jeffrey Clark. Uh, can you guys just throw in the detail about the number of stories that you get that like appear like they're going to be a really big story? But art, how much time do you waste uh, chasing down fake leads? And are there, like, how many, how often does the election end with a number of stories that you feel like could break any, any day if you just got one more confirmation, but you never actually get it? That's my question. Thanks. Bye. That happens with annoying regularity, and I appreciate the question. Um, we are as good as our sources, and so all we can do is sort of hunt down information and see if it checks out and see if we can uh, responsibly and reliably confirm it for print. Um, there have been a number of stories this cycle, which I won't point to because it would be they weren't published for a reason. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, in this cycle, anyway, in 2012, I remember chasing a story about a Republican campaign staffer, senior staffer, who was about to be fired because of personal indiscretions, and that never happened. Uh, but we chased it for a while, and, and we, we just couldn't quite get there. There have been similar stories, less about personal lives, but certainly just about intrigue involving staffers, either complaints of financial impropriety on campaigns or concerns about why uh, a certain staffer was hired and others were fired, certain specifics about candidates themselves. Mm -hmm. All of this has come up this year. We've gotten tantalizingly close on some and just have not been able to finish it, or as Donald Trump would say, close the deal. And I want to weigh in on this, too, because I've been involved in a lot of investigations this year that involved sensitive reporting and, mm -hmm. as you said, the chase mm -hmm. and the trail mm -hmm. would, would basically evaporate. In one case, we were deliberately misled. Uh, we got an email when we were writing about the women beginning to come forward and allege that Donald Trump had, in some way, assaulted mm -hmm. them physically. Uh, a writer wrote a, a mail to suggest that he had observed some conduct by Trump. And mm -hmm. when we wrote back to hmm. this person, his reply was, I tricked you. I just wanted to see how eager you were in his mind to, to pursue such leads. And we thought that was very surprising. That's a little disturbing. Um, it's funny that you said that, though, because one of the things that's a pitfall in the modern era of chasing leads as we are trying to confirm good scoops, you get emails and you have no idea who people are. No so idea. I had this tipster who kept emailing me. Um, you've now rattled my brain, so thank you. Uh, I had this tipster who kept emailing me in 2012 when I was at Politico before I had come here. And this person had information about the Clinton Foundation and I needed more and couldn't get it and sort of didn't match the, the standard for publication. But the person clearly had a fake email address. I had no way of contacting them other than that. And then, sure enough, the story showed up in another publication, uh, one that had a, a less of a, a solid um, standard for, for how much sourcing had to go in there. The story was nonetheless all true, but it was just 
it was very frustrating to watch it happen. And I think people don't understand that the threshold for publication, and this is true at Politico, and it's true at The Times, it's true at The Washington Post, it's pretty high. Yes. We have to is. feel really comfortable. Yep. We need to give the campaigns a chance yep. to acknowledge it. We have to give them many hours and sometimes days to get back to us, and there's competitive pressure. This is a related question, Maggie, about how campaigns prepare for scoops, bad ones. Benjamin Vertel asks, how do campaigns prep for or try to head off any bad news? If I think back on everything that I've done and I would want to run for president, I would think about all of those things and try to find a story to craft uh, so that people don't see me the way that my opponent sees me. And I was wondering, what do these campaigns uh, do to create those stories before those stories actually come up um, in the public eye? Thanks. It's a great question. I mean, most campaigns do what's called uh, self-opposition research. Um, so they try to be aware of whatever potential storylines could be coming, and they do that process self-vetting before the candidate enters the race, typically or they're speaking. Supposed to. They're supposed to. In this particular race, uh, neither candidate did a real fulsome self-vet. Uh, Trump did none. He rejected it repeatedly when his aides asked for it. Um, Clinton, and I reported on this, it was one of the first stories I did when I got to the paper, I had gotten a tip that um, she had hired a group called New Partners to start beginning the vetting process. But I couldn't get a sense of the scope of what it was going to be. And my sense is it was pretty limited. Cheryl Mills, her longtime advisor, former chief of staff at the uh, State Department, had always been sort of the keeper of the self-vetting flame in her previous races, in her 06 Senate re-election and in the 08 presidential. But again, when you have somebody who's that close to the candidate in charge of it, there can be a limit on how many layers of the onion get peeled back. And so this email issue with Clinton, with her private server, caught almost her entire campaign by total surprise, this small group of people, Cheryl Mills, Philippe Rhinus, and Huma Abedin, were all aware of it because they had come from the State Department. But nobody felt the need to sort of tip off or let know any of the dozens of people who they were hiring for this campaign. And we actually, we, we've now had confirmation of that from WikiLeaks, where John Podesta's hacked private emails show that uh, Robbie Mook, her campaign manager, asked Podesta, or Podesta asked Robbie, one or the other, were you aware of this? And neither one was. And WikiLeaks also gives us a pretty extraordinary glimpse into how a campaign literally receives the news that a story is coming, begins to freak out, and then spin. I can't remember another time where anyone has had this kind of a, just essentially you took off the, the top of the box and got to look inside of what happens in a campaign. It's pretty breathtaking. A lot of it is very ugly. Watching the sausage get made is never pretty. Um, but it is, as you say, it is unique and unusual. Okay, Maggie, one more on coverage. Hey, Michael and the run-up team. I'm Zachary Hansen. I'm a journalism student at the University of Georgia Athens. Go dogs. My question is, how tough was it uh, for you and the New York Times to make certain wording decisions this election, specifically in cases such as calling Trump's birtherism claims a lie? This is an excellent question, uh, albeit multifaceted, but starting with the first part about the, the language issue, which you and I can both speak to, we, um, we struggled with this. I think throughout the campaign, we've never encountered a, a post-truth candidate like Donald Trump. And so trying to characterize the magnitude of a falsehood and whether it was actually stretching the truth versus 
an entire uh, entire untruth. And it, we are used to writing in, in euphemisms, but that really undersells what he's doing in a lot of cases. And you, I think, broke tremendously new ground for us when you described his birther claim as a lie on the front page. It feels now like a more consequential decision than it did in the moment. And I think it's a bit of an interesting backstory. That morning I had been, and people in our business don't like to talk about social media because it's supposed to be this messy cacophony, and it often is. But that morning there was a lot of back and forth about what Donald Trump was about to do and what to call it. And I was just really attuned to word choice. And people were having a discussion um, beyond this building about what this was. And it was kind of an unfinished, unformed discussion, but it was happening. And when I got in and watched him give this speech, it just kind of like, you know, something just kind of like rises up in you and mm-hmm. you sort of know what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And to me, a five-year emphatic declaration that something that was self-evident and documented was not true, which was that our president was born in the United States, that is the definition of a bald face lie. And so we just called it a lie. And our editors up and down, um, the masthead kind of felt it was right. And they cleared it and they let it happen and they put it in the headline. My feeling on that was that, and I believe this was yours as well, that if you're not going to call lying about the legitimacy of the sitting U.S. president a lie uh, in his birthplace a lie, then what else would you use that word for? It's sort of there's no other circumstance that's as large as that. Right. So I want to switch from questions about coverage of this campaign to today, which is election day. And we have a lot of questions about how today is going to unfold and feel. And for that, Maggie, I'm going to ask you to stay here. And we're going to be joined by Amy Chozik. Excellent. Thanks for having us, Michael. Okay, this question is about get out the vote efforts. Hi, uh, my name is Akiva. I'm from Queens, New York. Um, As a New Yorker, I've been wondering what exactly uh, a ground game looks like and a get-out-the-vote program. Um, What makes it work um, and be effective or ineffective? Uh, I've read a lot about Trump having a bad ground game. uh, So what effect is that expected to have on Election Day? Thanks very much. So the ground game, um, I've seen it uh, in ver- take various short forms, but this is basically how a campaign really gets down to the nitty gritty of getting people to vote. I mean, it's one thing for people to turn out to a rally or to watch the campaign passively on TV, but to get people to actually register and vote is quite an intensive effort that requires just thousands of volunteers and data and all kinds of things. So, for instance, uh, one of the best kind of ground game strategies I've seen from the Clinton campaign is they really want Puerto Ricans who have recently moved to Florida, who are, you know, they can, they're eligible to vote, but they might not know that, and they would be inclined to be Democrats. They are dying to register all of these new Puerto Ricans so in Florida. So particular. So specific. It can be so specific because that could actually sway Florida for them. And so they have had volunteers at and organizers at specific bus stops in parts of Orlando. If you've ever been to Latin America and you've seen these um, these parades in the streets of like loud reggaeton music and it's just like a cacophony of, of parade and you're not sure what's happening, those are, those are political events in, in Latin America. And they've been doing those for La Hillary wow. for in Spanish. I mean, to drive. The, so it's like very nitty gritty inside a community to connect with voters enough that they vote. I mean, another another way that they do it is through black churches. Um, but Hillary Clinton has an incredibly sophisticated operation on the ground that targets communities and constituencies where they live. It's important to remember, too, with ground game. And I, I often put a TM right after ground game because it sounds like it's some kind of a trademark thing. 
it can make up the difference of a couple of points in a close race. What it cannot do is help you in sort of a, a wider uh, vote disparity, and it cannot help you if there's uh, going to be a, a route. So as this race has tightened, and we have seen it tightened, it could end up making a big difference for Hillary Clinton. I mean, the other thing I'd say is, to Maggie's point, is the time when ground game can't make a difference is if there's no enthusiasm for the candidate. So you could have as many, you know, young staffers swarming the streets, but if people aren't excited about the candidate, that can be difficult. I mean, I've often posed the question of the Clinton campaign, would you rather have an organization or enthusiasm? You know, remember in 2008, Obama had both. Um, they've got the Obama guys helping them with their data and their ground game, but they haven't had the same enthusiasm. Just to go back to this caller, Akiva, wondering why he hasn't felt the ground game. Is it possible that someone's not touched by either of these campaigns because they think you're useless to us? Or we know how you're going to vote. We're, we know you're going to vote for us, so we don't feel it, really feel we have to do anything. How is it that somebody would be totally untouched by this puzzle? Because he lives in Queens. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean that's right. That's, you got to spend answer. money in the in the states that are really that real battlegrounds. Um, well, Maggie and Amy, thank you so much. Thank thanks you. for having us. We'll be right back. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, fueled roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think, is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Let's talk about Election Day itself and how it is we learn who won. For that, I'm turning to Michael Grimbaum. He covers television for The Times. Hi, Michael. This question is from Jacob in New York. He wants to know how much early voting, of which there's been a lot this mm. year, factors into how the networks are going to make their call tonight about who the winner is. So what a lot of people don't realize is that all the TV networks are depending on the same batch of raw data. The Associated Press sends reporters out to tons of election boards in states and local municipalities, and there they get the raw counts directly from, from the government. The networks then use their own models to crunch those numbers and decide whether they can project a winner. So in the case of the early voting, those records are only unsealed after polls close in a certain state. 
So that number will be added uh, at the start of the count, uh, and we'll probably get a sense early on of, of the trend of early votes. But we're still going to have to wait a few hours for the swing states to produce a, a true result. Jacob's question makes me wonder about the decision desks more broadly mm. this year and how anxious they have to be given the way that Donald Trump has talked about not just a rigged election, but a biased corporate media culture. He's basically saying that all of our coverage is suspect. So I wonder if the cable news stations and the networks worry that that perception is going to apply to them the moment they flip the switch and decide to say who they think won. Well, you know, there's been this erosion of trust in the nation's news media, and these decision desks are not immune from that. In the past, I think most Americans turned to television to be the scorekeeper on election night. It's how most of us learn the results. But this year, there's a sense already, and we see it in the blogosphere and on social media, where pundits are saying networks are sending their exit polls out to Democratic-heavy districts. They're planting their surveys in places to show that Hillary is winning. There's going to There's be, no evidence for any of that. There's no evidence, just to be clear. Um, but I expect to see, by the time the night's over, especially if we see a close race, quite a few people suggesting that the networks are biased and that they're part of the rig system and that the calls they're making, although they're made by teams of statisticians and pollsters who are professionals and nonpartisan, are essentially uh, you know, generating these results to, to favor one candidate over another. I wonder, Michael, what steps the networks can take to try to fortify or inoculate themselves against that distrust? What do you find? I think we're going to see places like CNN bringing cameras into the decision desk. Oh, interesting. To say, these are the experts that we've brought in. They're nerds who are earnest and they, you know, they care about math. And, uh, you know, you don't need to worry about us giving you a bias. And they're pasty white and they don't look ready for prime time. But... <laughs> but you can trust them because they're they're not smarmy like an anchor. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that um, what's really interesting this year is that there's actually an experimental project going on called VoteCaster that's going to be putting out projections during the day before polls close. Ooh, that's considered a no-no. It's a real taboo in, in electoral reporting. And, and going way back to 1964, I was looking through the archives. CBS got in a lot of trouble because they called a race for Goldwater before the California polls had closed. And uh, But this this group, VoteCaster, is going to be essentially on, on, the, on the website of Slate, the news magazine, um, putting out turnout numbers and essentially saying that based on their models, here's how we can project the day, uh, the, the results for the end of the day. And I'm curious if the networks are going to be tempted to report that because a lot of people feel that that's, that in a sense subverts democracy because it can be discouraging or encouraging of certain voters to go to the polls. Michael, there's another fascinating question about how election night will unfold from Katie Cameron. She writes that she's 21 and this is her first election, the first one she's going to be able to vote in. And she's terrified. And she says, what is the probability that Trump will ask for a recount? What do you think? Well, first of all, I'm really excited for Katie. I remember voting in my first presidential election, and it's kind of like a little thrill. It's totally thrilling. It feels like you're part of this big kind of civic experiment going on. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> 
I think that if we come down to a fairly small margin on Tuesday, the chances are pretty high that Trump kind of sensing that there's some vulnerability or some some doubt about the outcome uh, would be able to say, even if he refused to concede just that evening, we need to take a closer look at this. We're going to send our lawyers in. I'm not going to let my supporters down and give in right away. And, you know, you could see him waiting hours, days, weeks to to actually concede the election. I think if there's a much wider margin, it's going to be more difficult for him. And and I presume his advisors will be putting a little more pressure on. Don't you think that's going to create such an interesting dilemma for the anchors and particularly in television world, right? Because it's a moment where you can imagine, I'm just sensing Tom Brokaw, who I worked for one summer when I was in college. I can imagine, you know, kind of him deploying his authority to say, I just want to be clear, this man or woman, but in this case, this man has lost an election and he refuses to concede and sort of bringing it into historical context and and making a real statement about why that's unusual and maybe even destructive. But who knows if that's going to happen? Well, I, I spoke with executives at almost every network in the last few days, and I asked them this exact question. How do you report an election where one, where one candidate essentially will not give up? Um, and the answer was that they're going to keep going back to the math. If their count shows that Hillary Clinton is over the 270 mark, that she's won the majority of the Electoral College votes, they're going to report that she's won. Um, And to your point, whether we'll see some sort of Edward Murrow moment, kind of an anchor who uses it as as a chance to really to make a statement about the integrity of our democracy. I think we might see some of the more opinionated anchors move in that direction, but a lot of news outlets will feel a little held back by the rules of objectivity. And, and, we'll be, and it's going to be really see. interesting to watch. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. I want to move from questions about today, Election Day, to what happens tomorrow, November 9th, regardless of who wins. Here with me is Jonathan Martin, who's a political correspondent at The Times, who knows more about American politics, geography, and the presidency than anyone. Jonathan, thank you for being here in the studio. Great to be here. Jonathan, this question requires you to imagine what the Republican Party looks like after tomorrow. Hi, my name is Vimal Vora, and I live in New York City. Uh, my question is, uh, let's say Trump loses. Is this a case of demagoguery gone wild, a one-time event, or does it cause a Goldwater-like realignment? Will there be candidates who use the Trump playbook, dog whistle racism, to win the Republican nomination in 2020? and dial it back for the general? Thanks. It's a great question. I do think that Trump has made clear that there are obvious incentives for a kind of racially tinged populism or nationalism in a Republican primary season, and that those uh, incentives uh, carry through for a general election. It might not get him 51 percent, but it seems to get you 40 in a general election, and a fractured primary, it can get you a nomination. Right. So, yeah, I think if you're looking at issues like immigration, like international trade, like the threat of Islamic terrorism, clearly there's going to be a market in the 2020 primary for some voters or for some candidates to run along similar lines. Now, the question is, will the coverage be different because – a elected politician saying those things might be treated differently than Donald Trump saying mm. those things. I mean, that's a whole different conversation for a different day. But um, you know, I think early on, at least, he he was saying things that perhaps were not treated as seriously right. when you came to some of these issues because he wasn't perceived to be a sort of normal candidate, and it was seen as kind of a lark. 
Jonathan, we had a, a really smart question from Bill Thompson. This was what he asked. Uh, I want to know if the Republicans may have learned something about managing their nomination process to create superdelegates like the Democrats did to have speed breaks on uh, rabid public opinion in the primaries. That conversation is taking place right now, which is how do we as Republicans create some kind of a uh, a scenario where the party leaders have more impact on the nominating process um, in the way that Democrats do? Look, I think it's going to be difficult for them to push this through because effectively you're going to have to be taking power from the grassroots and that's never a good look nope. <laughs> for, a, for, for a politician. Uh, so you might have to sort of camouflage it uh, a little bit. You know, maybe you call them um, beat liberals delegates instead of uh, super delegates. <laughs> Rename, rebrand. Right. Freedom fries, you know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, but how do you push that through where party leaders have more say? Smoke-filled rooms are not in vogue anymore. But there was something to be said for smoke filled rooms in terms of picking candidates. The incentives for political bosses and for statewide officials who picked the candidates were geared towards winning elections. That was the entire point. Let me get specific and a quick follow up on that. I remember when you and I were in Iowa, the Republican leadership was talking about a couple of option, options for kind of taking a little more control of the nominating process. One of them, as I recall, was the idea of regional elections to change the primary. So it's not it's not Iowa, then it's not New Hampshire. It's yeah. not this kind of slow, infuriating yeah. process. So regional primary voting all on one day. That was one option. The other is, you know, something like superdelegates. Do you think either of those two specific things could really come to pass? I think you will see some kind of changes made. Yes. A party doesn't lose three elections in a row and keep marching up the same hill to be be shot uh, down again. Sorry for the metaphor. Um, <laughs> bloody. But I'll say this. The first instinct of a party to change is always process instead of policy, right? Mm. It's easier to change process than it is policy because the policy stuff is closer to the bone. So I think you'll see something done. Keep in mind, there were slight changes to the process between 12 and 16, right? They, they took more control over the debates. They created a different kind of calendar. Or so they thought. Exactly. Um, to your question about the alternating primary dates, I think that's also going to be in the mix. You know, Ryan's previous, the RNC chairman, has said this, that he is open to looking at Iowa and New Hampshire leading off the process. And I, and I think that's going to be a really active conversation, too. You're going to have larger states, more diverse states, more politically competitive states that are you know, going to say, hey, maybe it's our turn to actually have some say. And that, by the way, isn't even to talk about a whole other story, which is what do Democrats do with Iowa? Do they keep starting there? Because the Clintons, not so fond of Iowa. Cannot win it. It's going to be harder for her to win it in the general election. She barely beat Bernie Sanders there, and she saw her hopes dashed by Obama there eight years ago. And Democrats, frankly, how do they keep starting their nominating process in a heavily white state, given their coalition? A different story for a different podcast. Okay. Rob Bull, one of our listeners, has a question about what the future of Congress looks like. Here's what he asked. My question is, assuming that the election will be close, neither of the candidates will be entering the office with a mandate. This seems to give center-right Republicans, those that remained, in the House and Senate an outsized opportunity to craft the agenda of critical legislation, such as the expected infrastructure bill or health care reform. This is especially true with a President Clinton. So who are the center-right Republicans that the run-up believes will be in Congress next year? Do they have a common agenda or any cross-policy interests? 
And is there any indication that they can or should form a coalition? Thank you. I think the incentives for both parties after this ugly, even grotesque election are going to be towards cooperation and consensus, at least in the initial months. And also, that's kind of been her M.O. if you look at her brief career in politics. That's how she operated when she was a a senator. So I think she'll reach out uh, and certainly try to get a bill like infrastructure, which I think is important done across party lines to sort of build some relationships. Um, Who are the players going to be? Look, the obvious ones are going to be Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, and Paul Ryan, likely still the speaker. They're very different people, different generations, different politics. And are uh, they center-right? I think McConnell's instincts are certainly center-right. Um, I think he is less of an ideologue uh, than Ryan is. I think Ryan's more of a true believer when it comes to his politics. He really believes that stuff. But both of them are fairly practical and at least show that Washington can function. Now, that said, you know, are they going to roll over and sort of like, you know, green light Hillary's agenda because Trump just got beaten? No, of course not. Um, a few folks that I'm going to be curious to see how they operate. Uh, Jeff Flake from Arizona, one of the biggest anti-Trump mm-hmm. voices in this primary or in this uh, election, I should say, uh, a huge proponent for an immigration reform bill. He was part of the Gang of Eight. Uh, he has a primary in 2018, and he'll face a challenge from the right in Arizona, a state that's hugely divided in its politics. You know, when it comes to immigration and identity, especially, watch him. I think that's going to be a really a sort of fascinating person. And the other person to watch, who's always looking to make a deal and always looking to get stuff done, is Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, another anti-Trump figure who has a deep relationship with Hillary Clinton. And I think. The second that she is sworn, and actually even the second that she wins the election, I think he'd be looking to try to get stuff done. Immigration, on entitlements, infrastructure, what have you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, guys. So we've been answering questions from run-up listeners. Now, though, the biggest question of all, and here to answer it is Nate Cohn from The Upshot. Nate, what is our election day number? 322. Which is what? That is the number of electoral votes that we think Hillary Clinton is favored to win. And how'd you come up with that calculation? Uh, I looked at a lot of polls. <laughs> a lot of them. And it's it's not very complicated. I mean, that's how many states Clinton basically appears to lead in the polls in. So high school math class question, how many electoral votes does that leave Donald Trump? Oh, I didn't prepare that one. I think <laughs> it's 216. You can all check me. <laughs> so 322. Going all the way back to our original first episode, and you were one of our first guests. It was a privilege. Thank you. Is that number an electoral landslide, or is it something more disappointing? Uh, I don't think it's an electoral landslide. It's smaller than President Obama's victory in 2012 when he won 332 electoral votes. But it's enough to win. Fascinating. Well, Nate, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. I'll see you back here tomorrow morning when we know who the next president of the United States is. But one last question. Hi, uh, I'm Ryan from Oregon. I've been listening to this podcast and I really, really like it. And I'm just wondering if there will still be a New York Times politics podcast uh, after this election is over. Thanks. Bye. The answer is yes. This show will continue. More to come.
In her new book, Attack from Within, former U.S. attorney and MSNBC legal analyst Barbara McQuaid breaks down the ways disinformation works. McQuaid explains why America is particularly vulnerable to disinformation, how authoritarians have used disinformation to seize power throughout history, and she offers solutions to counter disinformation in this election year. Timothy Snyder, author of On Tyranny, says this book is a necessary call to the ethical commitment to truth that all democracies require. Published by Seven Stories Press, Attack from Within is available now wherever books are sold.